0: This is Sparks and Wiry Cries, taking a modern look at classical song with Martha Guth and Erika Switzer.
1: Welcome to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We're your hosts, Martha Guth
2: and Erica Switzer. We have Ben Binder with us today again to talk about Schumann's Dichterliebe and how lucky we are. Ben, could we start by having you maybe outline the story, as it were, of Dichterliebe?
3: Yeah, the story is a loose story. It's an open story in the sense that the details are not really that specific, and the quality of experiencing the cycle is not necessarily one of a story with beginning, middle, and end. Kind of a sequence of feelings and experiences and responses to things that have happened. But nonetheless, there is a kind of story, and what we can gather from the songs themselves is that. We have a protagonist, a male protagonist, who has fallen in love with a girl. And they do have some kind of love affair. We know that there was a kiss. We know that there was cuddling and canoodling and all kinds of things like that. But we don't really know if she loves him back sincerely. She says, I love you at one point, but that causes him to weep bitterly. So (laughs) we don't know if that means that all of his... uh, internal hopes about the way things would be now that she's actually brought into reality that you know reality can't live up to his dreams or whether he doesn't believe her or whether he knows he has a premonition that she's going to betray him. But in any case, there's some kind of love affair between them, sincere or no. But eventually, she falls in love with someone else. And we know all, a lot of these next details from one song where he very bitterly recaps the whole story, as though it were not an important story at all. Uh, so we know that she fell in love with someone else, another boy. That other boy ended up marrying someone else. So a, to hear him tell it, in order to get back at the boy that she really loved, which is not him, which is not the protagonist, his girlfriend, this woman, um, went out and married the first guy to cross her path. And his heart was broken.
1: Typical rebound relationships.
3: <laughs> <laughs> which goes to show that she wasn't really that sincere about the relationship she was in to begin with. And so the song, we know all these things from what the protagonist is saying about the relationship while he's having it. Mm -hmm. Um, So all the songs are in the present tense as he's kind of experiencing this, except for the first one, which is in the past. I'm sure we'll talk about this in a second, but uh, Schumann took all the poems for Icho Lieber from a collection, uh, a larger collection of poems by Heinrich Heine and he changed the order a little bit from the order that they appear in the original poetic cycle. Heine's original story of in telling these poems is even more diffuse than that and it's again not so much about the specifics of the story as it is about um, the changing moods and approaches. Two Months has a little bit more of a specific story.
2: Maybe we could start in the past tense. Does the first yeah. song act as a frame then for the rest of the cycle? Is, is that how the, the the past tense interacts with the present?
3: Yeah, I think so. There, there's a musicologist by the name of Nicholas Marston who wrote a really insightful essay about uh, the perception of time in German Leader, And he uses this as, as an example of... Well the, well, the way he talks about the opening of Die Filibe is that the first song is, like you say, a frame, sort of a narrative introduction. Imagine a movie where we see an old woman by the fire says, "Oh, I remember the time when I was a young woman." And then the <laughs> the, the screen, he goes like "doo doo doo doo," and it gets all wavy. And right. then we see a spring day, and she's running through the fields when she was young. That's wonderful. Sort of the effect of the first right. song.
2: Do You have to sing the first song as if you were an old woman. Is that, <laughs> is that what you're suggesting? That
3: would um, <laughs> be another meta layer to this whole. Yeah. That could be explored. May not be. necessary.
1: So why don't we listen to that uh, framing, so so
2: to speak, Um, this is im wunderschönen Monat Mai. Our delightful performers are Gerald Findlay, baritone and pianist Julius Drake.
1: So in conversations past, you've talked about how our poet, Heine, makes great use of sarcasm. And you've spoken about how in the fourth song, that is perhaps a, a good example of that. Do you have uh, any comments or words of wisdom to say about that?
3: There are ways you can hear the first, very first poem is having some of this. But the fourth poem has a very characteristic Heine poetic gesture, which you could put under the category of irony.
1: This
2: is, this is the song called, Wenn ich in deinen Augen sehe... I don't know how the case is right. Oh, yeah. Wenn ich in deinen Augen sehe... Okay. When I look into your eyes.
3: So, Heine's poetry is often about love, from the perspective of a lover, about his beloved. And um, Heine, as the poet lover, often can't really trust the beloved, because she does bad things. and breaks his heart. And he tries to defend himself by being sincere in the poetry until a point and then it breaks and then there is a bitter twisting of the knife towards the end of a poem it's in german it's the stimmungsbruch it's the breaking of tone so in this fourth poem uh when i look into your eyes there's sort of, there are four parts when i look into your eyes then all my suffering disappears when i kiss your mouth and i feel totally well like i was sick before and then that the when I lean on your breast, just you know joy comes over me like heaven heavenly joy comes over me. But then when and then, when I hear you say, "I love you, so and, and now the last line of the poem is supposed to be. And so you think, well, this must be the most ecstatic thing of all, right? Because we've had you know, looking into the eyes and kissing and then leaning on the breast. I mean, we're getting as close as possible. And then finally, the words, you know that consummate the whole thing. And what is the last line? And when you say I love you, then I must weep bitterly. So why would <laughs> why would, would the poet be weeping bitterly? You know, he sets it up and then okay, now this this could be kind of a self pitying, pathetic gesture on the part of the poet. You know, then when we say I love you, I weep bitterly because I know I'm not worthy of you, or because um, you know now we have nothing left. You know we,
1: Sounds like friendly, but <laughs> to hope
3: for right we we we've achieved everything that we could possibly achieve, or but it could also be you know she finally says it, and he turns the tables on her by weeping Oh, bitterly. wow
1: oh.
3: now this there are some poems where it's a lot more obvious that he's turning the tables and really like I say, twisting the knife, trying to hurt her, weeping bitterly may not be the best way to hurt her it shows how unstable he is as well, right, but the main point is that there's this in the poem where we expect something very good and we get something very bad.
1: So my question then for you is if if uh, if Heine does this very specifically and this is not this is a more common occurrence um, did Schumann get that?
3: I think I think it's pretty clear that Schumann got it yeah what he did with it in the music I think is more complex than whether he simply replicated what Heine did or not right. Um, we know from Schumann's diaries that he was reading Heine and was aware of his whole poetic outlook when he was a young guy, when he was in his late teens, early twenties. He met Heine and said, "You know, there's a there's a sardonic smile that plays about the poet's lips," because he met him mm, on this trip that cool. he took to Italy and so on, and he wrote about it. So this is, you know, on his mind. He knows what Heine is all about, and he set many of Heine's poems. Yeah. He was a very sensitive reader. Schumann was just as much a writer as a composer. So. So I I think, you know, a lot of people say, well, Schumann didn't get the irony, Mm -hmm. because in this song, for example, he clearly understands all the different images in the poem. There's this sense of intensification from the the first three of the scenes, and then the fourth scene when she says, I love you. The music's very beautiful. Um, The music seems to slow down. There's a diminished seventh chord that... this element of tension when she said and when when you say I love you and we we're waiting for something we expect the music then to become you know know, something very negative when you know and then I must weep bitterly and should go down into the deep register of the piano and be very dark instead it sort of continues in the major key it has a beautiful postlude that ensues
2: it's almost a release the crying in the music I mean it doesn't Mm -hmm. create further tension
3: yeah, it, it seems to resolve that last image of and when you say I love you, I must weep bitterly. Now in the in, in the setting, the word bitterly yeah. and that's really where the turn happens, so mosichweinen bitterly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean that word sounds like what it means, bitter. Yeah. And the B Schumann sets on the note B, which is coincidence. Um, with an accent on an offbeat. So really So again, he heard it. He knew this was the turn Mm -hmm. of the poem. But for him, I mean... A natural progression? Well, I mean, you know, we we don't know what Schumann was thinking. I I don't like saying, well, clearly Schumann, by setting it, (laughs) meant this. He meant this. I think Mm -hmm. what I think the music seems to suggest, which we could fictively imagine that Schumann, in quotes, you know, intended. Sometimes you can weep for joy, right? And uh, I I just performed this piece uh, last month. The singer I was working with, Troy Cook, had a brilliant suggestion which I'd never thought of before, which is that the chords in this post-lude, which echo the main rhythmic motif of the song. These repeated chords are the chortled sobbing Mm. of the protagonist. Mm. But they're in a major key. Um, I think it's so beautiful how this song is in... G major, I'm not sure what our recording will be in, Um, but these chords uh, are all built on this G major chord with a seventh added to make them dissonant to resolve somewhere else first. The subdominant if you're taking notes at home.
1: Which I'm sure all of you are. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but the, but the, the main feeling here is that the song is over, and yet the song wants to go further. Yeah. And it tries to go further, and then it pulls back and doesn't. So there's this, it's her surge of emotion that sinks back to where, where, where it ended. Um, the rhythmic quality of sobbing. I think Schumann was capturing the pain as well as the joy that's all happening in one moment. The sense of she does love me, but it's not going to last forever. Because no love comes forever.
1: Well, why don't we have a listen to Julius Drake and Joe Finley and their interpretation
0: of song number four? <laughs>
2: me what uh, makes Schumann, what makes a Schumann song his own is often his piano writing. And uh, the next three songs that we'll hear all together are Und Wissen Sie Blumen? That's number eight. Number nine, Das ist ein Flöten und Geigen. And number ten, Hör ich ein Liedchen klingen. Could you introduce these songs and maybe introduce us into your thoughts on Schumann's piano writing and
3: more comments? Sure. So um, this group of three songs, the way Schumann writes them, um, they kind of belong together and they create a little... You know. <laughs> so his heart has just been broken. We know for a fact from the of Council 4, number 8, Ich nicht, 7, um, that she's left him and broken his heart. So in number 8, Und wussten Sie Blumen? he's um, saying, if only the flowers and the stars and the, um, the nightingales knew how much I was suffering... They would come and they would console me, Um, but only one person knows my pain. Her, she is the one who has torn my heart into pieces. So the piano in this song has these agitated thirty-second notes that suggest the fluttering of the leaves, you know, the petals of the flowers, or the nightingales, or the the shimmering stars above. It's kind of a catch-all accompaniment figure that manages to paint all the images in the poem. What's interesting is that he's saying, if only all these other things out there in the world knew my pain, but only one person knows it. She, her. Um, he's torn my heart apart. Um, what's interesting is that the piano in Schumann's songs can sometimes amplify the emotions of the protagonist, mm-hmm. like an extension of their self as they're expressing themselves. So at the end of the song, this is, the postlude of the song is a good example of that. Only one person knows my pain. Her, she has torn my heart apart. Listen mia, das Herz. And then, as soon as he's he's done singing that, the piano just continues as though
2: the fury. Yeah.
3: yeah that, so this postlude is just expressing the the agitated anger and pain that he's still feeling. He's just not saying it anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Maybe this is stuff. This is pain that's so intense he can't even put it into words. And so the piano, you know, if he was this was, was a drama, he would just his eyes would be ablaze, and you're hearing what's going on in his heart. So in that sense, the piano and the voice are one. But there are other times when the piano seems to take on its own autonomy. It seems to be a character in itself or to actually be the things around him, like the flowers or the nightingales or the stars that are in his world. So song number nine is a good example of this. Uh, The piano is playing a waltz, sort of turning waltz with constant sixteenth notes, sort of dizzying waltz and it's dizzying because he is now finds himself he finds himself outside the wedding celebration of his sweetheart who's getting married to that guy and um <laughs> uh his vocal line is kind of awkward because he's he's really just sort of talking on top of this waltz because he's yeah, listening almost to screaming
2: it. sometimes it yeah seems like. getting yeah. a very
3: high very angular um intervals And uh, we know from the manuscripts, uh, there was a really important study done Uh in the 70s by Rufus Hallmark that's very important for all Schumann lovers to check that out. We know that Schumann tended to write the melody line of these songs, all the songs, first, and then bring the piano accompaniment to it after, which seems odd considering how important the piano is. But it also shows how Schumann thought of the song as a kind of lyric conception in itself, and then heard the piano, put it into a context of piano music, that there could be this tension between piano music that supports the protagonist and piano music that is something separate. of itself, yeah. This song, however, number nine, is is an exception, where he wrote the piano music first and then put the singer into that world of the waltz, of the the wedding party. Um, And that partially explains the awkwardness of the vocal line. Well,
2: it kind of explains the feeling of playing the song, too, from the pianist's perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you feel like you have to demand more autonomy when you play that song than the other ones. You can't listen in the same way to the singer that you, in in, in that song, than in, say, the first song of the cycle, where you have a lot of flexibility and you can shape yourself to the poetry. Mm-hmm. In in number nine, it's like, you just have to play that rhythm until it's done, and you hope that it all works out, you and know? And you all end up at the same mm-hmm. place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
3: Well, the responsibility is not so much on you, I think, as the pianist, yeah. as it is on the singer, because the singer yeah. is the one who's in that, who's standing outside of the party. Right. So you're the party. Yeah, yeah I
1: am. Right. <laughs> you are the party. I think you're the party all the time, though, Erica.
3: <laughs> so, um, connecting these songs, the end of number eight, the postlude that we talked about, that figure um, kind of goes like. <laughs> Um, that music is transformed into the basic uh, tune that, Erica that you would be playing in yeah. song number nine as the accompaniment to what he's saying about being outside the wedding party. Then we have song number 10. Now the wedding party's over, but he's still hearing music. He suddenly hears, whether it's in his imagination, a hallucination, or in reality, maybe... Smith is walking by, or you know, who knows what. But he hears the old song, the little song that his beloved used to sing. And when he hears it, his heart is full of pain, and he feels that he needs to go to the highest mountaintop and let all of his sorrow out flood mm-hmm. of tears. Mm-hmm. The piano starts out with an introduction where we hear this tune that he then sings, and then we hear it again in the piano part. And so the piano here represents the tune that he's hearing. And Schumann gives us this sort of echo chamber texture in the piano part to suggest that it's not simply that the piano is playing the tune, but the way that Schumann writes the tune in the piano part gives it that feeling of something heard in the distance, something yeah. that is sort of objectively there. It's almost not, it's not music in the sense that it's not part of this it's piano. It's disembodied somehow. Yeah, that it's... Um, so the, the, my left-hand notes, these are the downbeats. The melody is always set off from the downbeat. And then the um, singer comes in with that same tune. So, yeah, there, there's something sort of concretized about the melody, that you really hear it, even... It's not simply that the piano is playing the tune. The way Schumann writes it makes it sound like something that is overheard,
0: mm-hmm. something
3: that is that catches your ear in the context of some other rustling of sound. Right. And the piano postlude continues that effect, because uh, in, the, in the topmost part of the texture, you'll, you'll hear the tune again, and it'll kind of fade away... And then as you're still hearing the end of the tune, you start to hear it again mm-hmm. in the middle of the texture, It's an incredibly complex counterpoint where the tune is repeated over and over again, overlapping with itself, as though it's echoing itself within the echo chamber that is his own mind. This is becoming less externally heard music and now more internally reflected upon music until finally it gets low enough that it begins to really agitate which is what the poem is all about. and So now the music begins to churn, it moves up chromatically, it gets louder, more intense, and there's this big explosion of pain. But it, everything I just said is purely in the piano. And so that's what I find so truly stunning about Schumann's postludes ludes this piano music that happens after the song is over, is that they take on an intense expressivity because we don't really know if this is music from some other character, mm-hmm. or if this is really the music that is coming from the protagonist's soul mm. in a wordless way. It's constantly subject and object, self and other, are, are blurred together. And um, it makes the music so incredibly powerful, even when it doesn't have the words. And
2: for the die Blumen, die Kleinen, das ist ein Geigen, hör ich ein Liedchen klingen, all three songs performed by Gerald Finley and Julius Drake.
0: Und wüßt uns die Blumen, die kleinen, wie tief verwundet mein Herz. Sie würden mit mir weinen, zu heilen meinen Schmerz. Und wüßt uns die Nachtigallen, wie ich so traurig und krank. Sie ließen so fröhlich erschallen, erklickend Gesang. i Schmerz, sie to go ja selbst zerrissen. Zerrissen. Das ist ein Flöten und Geigen, Trompeten schmetter da Trompeten schmetter da.
1: There were originally four extra songs that were supposed to be published with Liebe, and we want to listen to uh, one of those today. Let's talk about Es Leuchtet Meine Liebe.
3: Es Leuchtet Meine Liebe, uh, My Love Shines in its Splendor. This was one of the four songs that Schumann had originally intended to be part of Dichterliebe before it was even called Dichterliebe, it was called 20 Songs. When he went, he wrote them in 1840, went to publish them in 1844 at the very last minute, took four of them out, and left them as a set of 16, and called it Dichterliebe, a poet's love.
1: Why, why take out these four poems?
3: Well, there are a number of, no one knows for sure. One thing we know is that at this time in his life, Schumann was really trying to sell his music. Hmm. He did not, he always tried to sell his music, and he did sell it, but it wasn't selling very well. In the 1830s, when he was writing avant-garde piano music, it's very technically difficult, very musically challenging. It, uh, it, 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 just, it, yeah, it, it wasn't a big seller. And so it's, now it's 1844. Schumann is married to Clara. They have some kids. They're trying to have a nice bourgeois existence. They need money. They want to have a comfortable life. He's trying to sell his music more. So he, from 1840 on, he's selling songs, that he, all of which he had written in 1840, but he's selling them slowly. 1840, 41 42 he's bringing them out over time so that the public can acquire a taste for what he has to offer uh, on that note he's trying to also write songs that do not challenge the player too much from a technical and these four songs uh, at least three three of them at least are technically challenging and the other and all of them in more or less are also musically challenging in terms Harmonic language, or just the complexity of the poetic sentiments, and that's of course what makes them totally awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, um, so it may be trying to make them, trying to make the whole cycle m- more. Uh, the other possibility, and other possibility, is that I've that I've heard articulated in the literature is that he took them out because the story that's told by Disho is more clearly told, the narrative of what happens to our protagonist is more clearly told if you take these songs out. If these songs are digressions mm-hmm. from the story. Mm-hmm. I actually believe that that is a very weak argument to because:
2: It um, seems to me there's already songs in the cycle that occasionally feel like digressions.
3: Yeah, I think this, the nature of the cycle is to digress. <laughs> the story is simple enough. Right. It's the emotional and internal digressions going on inside this guy's mind is exciting. Um, so it's really hard to say. A lot of times, songs were published in groups of eight. Twenty does not divide by eight, so he might have said, "All right, I'll take these out." I'll, he might have said, "Indeed, these are really these are the hardest ones. Let me take these out. If you know, if I have to do it, I'll take these out. There's a nice set of sixteen, and I'll find some other occasion to eventually sell these." The occasion never really came up because they mm-hmm. were in fact pretty difficult, and they really belonged in the cycle. He did publish them eventually in the late 1840s, 1850s. Another hmm.
2: The relationship between songs and Schumann is a big deal. He had a plan for modulation uh, between songs, and I wonder, do these four songs in their original placement live within that structure?
3: Yeah, so the song we're about to hear, Es meiner Liebe, is the song that comes after Mein Wagen hollet langsam, My Carriage is Rolling Slowly, which, which is, is another one, an, an extra one. The, song. An extra one. And that one comes after uh, the very famous 12th song of the actual published i Am leuchten summer Sommermorgen, on a radiant summer morning. So, i um, Am leuchten Morgan. Sommermorgen, uh, that song is in B-flat major. The song that would, would should have come next, Mein Vaguen Hallel, long song, that's in B flat major. Then we go to the relative minor mm-hmm. for the song we're going to hear now, as Love to My Llave. It's that song is in G minor, uh, and, and it ends on a high D, mm-hmm. for the third of the chord in B flat major, and then that D goes up to an E flat because the next song is in E flat minor, the one that he actually. Plays. Nice. So. They do move closely related from keys. one to another.
1: And for yeah. somebody listening who is not perhaps aware of key relationships, what does that do for the listener?
3: You know, some people have made a lot of fuss about how one song leads into another, as suggesting that songs truly really do belong together mm-hmm. in a very narrative sense, mm-hmm. one leading directly into another. It's impossible to sing them on their own. Right. I would say that the only thing we really know for sure a lot of song cycles, things that were published as song cycles that didn't have narrative connections, that were really just songs about a similar theme or songs that were generally about love. Like that. <laughs> it was just a way of selling songs, sure. largely. Uh, they also had these keys that were relatively close because in the same way as, you know, you make a nice iPod playlist and, you know, <laughs> listen to them and you, and you choose songs that are going to follow one to another, changing moods, you know, and having a nice variety... They did That's what this This was the iTunes of the no, this century. This
1: is the genius, the iTunes genius tab. <laughs> wow. You know, you, so you would we'll buy that, it,
3: huh? you'd buy it, and you'd go home, and you'd play through them, right? right? And if you're exactly. playing through them, it just is going to sound weird and feel weird if you go from E major, exactly. which has all these sharps, to, let's say, these all these...
1: So we're going to listen to Es leuchtet, meine Liebe. What is the, what's what's happening here?
3: Okay, so this is a fairy tale story. He's—it's as though the protagonist now is telling a fairy tale, which is really about him. He says, "Oh, my love shines in its dark splendor like a fairy tale told on a summer night." And then in the poem, there's quotes. Now he's telling the story. He says, "There's a um, a knight and his maiden are riding in the wilderness, and the moon is shining. He gets down on his knee." He is so excited, you know, he's professing his love. Then a beast comes out from the wilderness and uh, clobbers him awesome. and takes takes the girl. Wow. Dot, 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 dot. Gore. <laughs> and then at the very end, he says, in one of these ironic turns, because we heard a fairy tale story, which we think is a story about somebody else. And At the end, it says, well, when I am dead, that's when the story will be over.
2: Wow. And on that note, <laughs> let's end the story. Leuchtet meine Liebe.
0: Es leuchtet meine Liebe in ihrer dunklen Pracht, wie Märchen traurig und trübe, erzählt in der vormen Nacht im Zaubergartenwald. Zwei Bunden stumm allein es singen die Nachtigonnen, es flimmert der Mondenschein, die Ofgra steht still wie ein Bildnis. Riese Haus! Er stolpert der
3: Riese nach Haus. Wenn ich begraben werde, dann ist das Märchen
0: aus.
2: We wouldn't want to leave the listeners hanging. How does the cycle end?
3: Um, it ends on a. It ends on a good. I guess you would put it into the good category. Okay. <laughs> this is another case where Schumann seems to maybe present us with a different spin on the poetry than the poetry seems to suggest on its own. Um, so Heine's poem ends. Heine's cycle or Schumann's cycle that he drew from Heine's poetry ends with the alten Lieder, the old angry songs, <laughs> <laughs> uh, evil songs. So basically what he's doing is he's saying all those songs I sang about you, all the love songs, all, all the songs I just sang, including those two, you know, even the ones that were about pain and suffering, I'm going to put them all into a coffin. I'm going to sink that coffin into the sea and bury them. And At the very end of the song, he says, you know, after comparing this coffin to giant, large things and heavy things. You know, it's just the biggest, giant, heav- heav- heaviest thing you've ever seen. There's a lot of
2: things he wants to bury.
3: <laughs> yeah. He says, do you know why this has to be so big and heavy? Because I'm also burying my love and my pain. Okay. So he wants to say, the poem is just saying, good riddance. So after all the stuff like the reader is thinking, the reader of the poem by itself is thinking, why does it have to be so big? What's? You know, aren't you poets? Isn't this what you're supposed to do? He says, well, actually it's because I've had it with poetry. I've had it with all the things that make you write poetry. Mm. And there's a very abrupt ending. Schumann's song does not end abruptly at all. Mm
1: -mm.
3: In fact, the the kind of intense rigorousness, uh, sort of driven feeling of the first part of the song, at the very end, becomes very tender and uh, sensitive, as though for one last moment, the protagonist has a tear in his eye and feels love and feels the pain remembers what it was like. And this idea of memory is important because Postlude of the Song, which is quite long, begins with the same music that we heard in the postlude of a previous song, uh, "Am Leuchtenden Morgen, which we mentioned briefly before, the Radiant Summer Morning. In that song, the protagonist thinks that he hears the flowers talking to him and saying, "Don't be so angry with our sister, you know, the, the woman you love, she's our sister. Don't be so angry with her." You know. try to enjoy her. Smell the flowers. And then we hear this long postlude that seems to represent their voice, consoling him, being tender to him. And so, again, in this painful moment, we seem to hear the flowers speaking to him. But at the very end, the music branches off and Schumann keeps improvising and extending that flower music until it's not really flower music anymore. It's just this extemporaneous piano meditation all by itself. And people have wondered... What this postlude means for a long time. Is, is it the voice of the flower? Is it his, is it his inner voice? Because it ends on a D flat or a C sharp, which is also the very first note of the cycle, is it the mean Does it mean that we have entered a loop? Will he fall in love again and have the same story befall him again? I think because of what we know about Schumann, that this, isn't, this is a case where Schumann's autobiographical tendencies come to the fore. And that to me, uh, what what the postlude signifies is Schumann himself sitting at the piano and improvising. This was something that he loved to do from when he was a young man. He was famous for it, even though he had his stiff third finger and he couldn't really play as a concert pianist. He was, you know, he could still sit and follow his imagination. And that's how he composed his piano music at the piano, improvising different connections. We also know that in 1840 he got married to. Clara who he had been separated from for four years and had this painful courtship where they couldn't be together because of the protests of her father. So they went through a lot of, he went through a lot of joy and love with Clara, but also a lot of pain and insecurity and suffering. And so to me, maybe in the first part of the cycle, when we hear that music with the flowers, it is about the flowers, but at mm-hmm. the end, I think it's about Schumann sitting at the piano, taking the old music from before extending it and improvising and consoling himself with his own improvisation all the pain the Clara situation getting a chance to heal from that in his music and then a few months later he would marry her
1: well what a wonderful way to finish off this podcast we want to thank you again so very much and this has been terrific
3: it's my pleasure it's so much fun to talk about this and
2: <laughs> Thank you so much to Matthew Frinchapé, okay. our producer. Uh, we couldn't do this without you. This is Sparks and Wiry Cries. I'm Erica Switzer. I'm Martha Gu, And this is the last song of Schumann's Dichterliebe.
0: and arg Die Last uns jetzt begraben Holt einen großen Sarg Hinein leg ich Garmantes Doch sag ich noch nicht was Der Sarg muss sein noch größer wie's Totenware und Bretter fest und dick. Auch muss sie sein noch länger als wie zu mein die Brücke. Und holt mir auch zwölf Riesen, die müssen noch stärker sein. Als wie der starke Christo im Dom zu Köln am. R- Says sesgr-